So I got four questions. Forgive me, they're kind of repetitive, but I want you to think about this. Did you know that everything that you need to share the gospel can be found in the Old Testament? Did you know that everything that you need to share the gospel can be found in one book in the Old Testament? Did you know that everything you need to share the gospel can be found in one chapter of the Old Testament? Did you know that everything you need to share the gospel can be found in one verse in the Old Testament? Now, as a map of how to get to that destination, that verse, today I want to start by reading out of the book of Acts. Of course, that is the New Testament, but it's describing a story that um, occurred before any of the New Testament was written. Um, so this is going to be on the screen, and I'll go ahead and just read it to you. It's from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandage, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? Well, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. So this is the first recorded conversion in the Bible of somebody converting to Christianity through a study of the text. And this person goes back to Africa and begins the spreading of the gospel worldwide. All from a study of the book of Isaiah. Now what is it about the book of Isaiah that is so powerful that could communicate in such a powerful way? It communicates the entire gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. If you have good news, it kind of implies that there is bad news. What is the bad news? The bad news is is that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
But the good news is, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we're going to see later that both the sin and the solution to sin are dealt with. Now, it could be argued that, you know, even though this was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, that the first gospel is not Matthew in the New Testament. The first gospel is Isaiah in the Old Testament. So like Philip, my goal today is twofold. I want to explain the text to those who are not familiar with it, and I want to share the gospel. It's important that when you're reading the Bible, you try to understand the context. Authorial intent is very important, but it's extremely important when you're reading the prophets because they can be very confusing. And as you may have heard, any text taken out of context is pretext. Well, we don't want to make this text read as we want it to read. We want to read it as the author intended. So I'm going to give you some information about the book of Isaiah, the prophets in general, specifics. Um, And I think that you're going to be encouraged as we get closer and closer to that verse. One thing that I found amazing in studying the book of Isaiah is that it has an incredible uh, similarity to the Bible overall. Of course, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. And if you are familiar with your Bible, then you know that the, the Christian Bible has 66 books. The first half of our Bible is the Old Testament, and it has 39 books, the primary theme of which is judgment. But the New Testament, the second 27 books, has a primary theme of hope. Then you look at the book of Isaiah, and it has basically two halves, universally accepted. And the first 39 chapters have a primary theme of judgment. And the final 27 chapters have a primary theme of hope. It's awesome. Some people call it the mini-Bible. Now, here's some historical perspective, and I'll do my very best to be succinct here. (laughs) The nation of Israel's story is told in the Old Testament. Um, We're going to start talking when it becomes a kingdom, after Moses, after the judges. Saul is appointed king. He does a bad job. King, uh, King David becomes king. He does a really good job, but he doesn't quite do what God wants. Solomon takes over. He does an okay job, great job, but not what God wants. They blow it, they blow it, they blow it. After King Solomon, his son came in. He was such a poor king that the kingdom of Israel split into two. The two kingdoms. The, 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 there was 12 tribes. The first one, the, the, the northern ten, retained the name the nation of Israel. The southern two tribes retained the name of the kingdom of Judah, and they were based in Jerusalem. So for like the next 200 years, you've got major dysfunction. This is the story that you find in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And they are constantly fighting with each other, and they're constantly fighting with the nations around them, and they're constantly living out of God's favor because they're constantly breaking the covenant that they made with God through Moses at Mount Sinai. They just can't follow the law. They can't follow the spirit of the law. They mix their worship with other gods. They just do everything wrong. It's almost all bad news. So it is to these inept and corrupt kings of these two nations and to the people within them that the prophetic books of the Old Testament are preaching. Yes, it's preaching. 
It's not primarily predicting the future. Only about one-third of the, of the information in the prophetic books is describing things in the immediate, inter, intermediate future or the long-term future. 70% of it is discussing what's going on in the books of Kings and Chronicles. However, there are some amazing predictions that are very specifically fulfilled. As Mike covered a little bit last week and Dylan covered some the week before that. These are really, these books should be considered divine commentaries. It is what God is saying about what's going on on the ground right now. And then you have some very specific parts that are predicting the future. Always in the, in the realm or the theme of hope. Now, overall, the books that are prophetic have a common theme. It's a three-part theme. And as the Old Testament scholar Daniel Hayes put it, it's three parts. One, you, that is Israel or Judah, have broken the covenant, and you'd better repent. Number two, if you don't repent, you will face the judgment. But number three, yet there is hope. Beyond the judgment for a glorious future restoration for Israel, for Judah, and for all other people. Okay, the book of Isaiah itself. He wrote this anthology. It's a collection of writings at different times about different subjects. Usually his audience was the, the specifically the nation of Judah. And so the settings and the situation of his audience changes within the book. In the first half of the book, he, God reveals to Isaiah that Judah, like Israel, would be exiled from the promised land because of their sins. So they're experiencing the judgment. And the setting for chapter 53 is while the Jews were in exile in Babylon. So Isaiah's description of the forthcoming and monumental work of the suffering servant was originally penned to encourage an exiled people that someday they would be exiles no more. So I got one more thing to cover before we actually get into the text of Isaiah. And that is, who are the speakers in our text? By the way, in your bulletins, the entire text is written. Um, it is broken out in different colors so that you can see the different stanzas. But I want to cover who the speakers are. The speakers of this text are Isaiah and God. And I want to spend a, a, just a minute in chapter 6 before we go to chapter 50. To verse 13. So I'm going to read right now from the text just to kind of give you an idea of whose views of each other, the views that, that God and Isaiah have for each other. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then... One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. The reason why I wanted you to see this is not only is it describe how awesome and holy our God is, but you'll notice that even the famous prophet Isaiah didn't bring his own holiness and good works to God with some kind of expectation for reward. He just brought humility, brokenness, and his need. And God provided his atonement as a free gift. So keep that in mind for the rest of this message and keep it in mind for the rest of your life. All right, now we're going to go into the text. Actually, like I said earlier, it begins in chapter 52 and verse 13. And there are 15 verses in the passage made up of five stanzas of three lines each. If you want to take a pen and write on the side of the first stanza, a capital G, that's God, God speaking. The next three, you can bracket, the next three are all going to be Isaiah speaking. And then the fifth stanza is God speaking again. And that'll kind of help to follow um, how it goes. This all, they're also broken up by color so you can see the breakouts. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Obviously, this is post the triumphant entry, right? This is when he's suffering. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no, not, no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I'm going to pause for a second there. Look at that text again in your bulletin. The suffering servant dies. Clearly in verse 8, he's cut off in the land of the living. In verse 9, assign a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Yet in verse 10, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. How does that work? Resurrection. Sounds like a sermon for Mike next week. And back to the text, verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That was written 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah, in concert with God, was very intentional in how he communicated this point. Five parts. This is a form of Hebraic poetry called parallelism that draws our attention to a particular point of emphasis, which is the middle stanza. The middle stanza kind of repeats itself in two or three different ways, but it crescendos with 53.6. This one verse succinctly teaches the primary claim and hope of Christianity, that one sinless man would die to save the lives of many sinners. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the gospel. Anyone who loves Jesus must surely see the sovereignty of God at work in time, in history, his plan occurring. A particularly unique servant would come, suffer, and die, and then be glorified thereafter. As one commentator put it, it is as though Isaiah dug a trench at the base of the cross, put himself in it with a pen and a paper and one-way glass, and observed Jesus being crucified. What an amazing and clear prophecy to encourage and guide those who had ears to hear and eyes to see. That's the point. But it's a controversial point. As you know, there are two different religions that look for the Messiah, Judaism and Christianity. So why, doesn't, why didn't the Jews, for a large part, See, or hear, or believe our message. It's complicated, and I'm going to do my best to explain it. <laughs> Remember I said that there was a dysfunctional kingdoms. They had David, they had Solomon. Most of the kings were dysfunctional at best after that. They longed for a united kingdom. They longed for a king to come back to destroy Rome, to give Jerusalem back to her true self and to save the people, and go back to the days of glory. So when they say that they're looking for their new king, they call him the anointed one. That's what David was. David was anointed. And the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. 
So they were looking for a Messiah. That's something that was alluded to in the prophets. Then they have the prophecy of Isaiah that says there's a suffering servant to come. And they're looking forward to both of them. The challenge is, is that the people who were in charge of, of Judaism and Jerusalem at the time that Jesus came were more focused on a military victory to conquer Rome than they were focused on waiting for the suffering servant. They did believe at that time that the Messiah and the suffering servant were the same person. The problem is, is that the people in power rejected the suffering servant. The builders rejected the cornerstone. Sadly, because they didn't want to lose their positions of power or their way of life or their seat at the synagogues and their honor at the banquets, they rejected their Messiah. Now, a lot of them recognized that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection story far too closely resembles what we were looking for in the suffering servant from Isaiah. You know, they had these books. They were interpreting them for hundreds of years prior to Jesus. They were waiting for a suffering servant. But if you reject him, now you have to play games. And now you have to change how you've interpreted that prophecy. And no longer are we willing to accept that our Messiah was going to have to suffer. Now we're going to belittle that text, we're going to ignore that text, or we're going to reinterpret it and say, we, the nation of Israel, are the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That doesn't work logically. And I just have six quick reasons why. Number one, they were not sinless. Just read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah to see that. Number two, they did not suffer silently. There was plenty of efforts to be militaristic and fight back. They cannot atone for their own sins. There is no place in the Bible for atoning for your own sins. They didn't die. They didn't resurrect from the dead. And they haven't been glorified for being faithful servants. So on the contrary, they missed out for thousands of years because they did not recognize or believe the teaching of their own suffering servant. Mike made the point last week that the primary difference between Christianity and Judaism is that we see that the, suffer, that the Messiah had to suffer first and then be glorified. So we see the Messiah in the suffering servant and in Jesus. They're still waiting for a Messiah-type figure but not Jesus, and they minimize the importance of the role of the suffering servant. This passage today is clearly about an individual suffering servant who was predicted, came, did the work, and returned to his Father in heaven. Sadly, even today, Isaiah 53 is known in some corners as the forbidden chapter of the Tanakh, and it's not read in the synagogues, and it's not really discussed, and rabbis are still basically forced to deal with a thousand-year-old illogical interpretation that this is about the nation of Israel. So millions of Jews are unaware that this text even exists, and if they do hear it, they do assume that it was written by a Christian author. If there 
uh, remains any doubt in your minds that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the suffering servant described by the prophet Isaiah, then the following two passages should remove all doubt. I'm going to quote Jesus now himself from the Last Supper from Luke 22:37. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Later in that same book, Luke tells of an enthralling experience two of Jesus' disciples had after his crucifixion and resurrection. Reading from Luke 24, 13 through 27. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? Their faces stood still, or they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all of the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now let's flash forward to the verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. So the gospel message found in Isaiah is good news indeed. As Paul said to the early Roman church, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. All right, now I want you to remember, I shared earlier a common threefold theme to the prophets. Now I want to revisit that theme. But this time, please recognize this for what it is. This is the message of the Bible. This is God's message for you. You have broken the covenant. You had better repent. You won't repent? Then you will face the prescribed judgment. Yet, there is hope beyond the judgment for a glorious future restoration, both for you and for all people. Now I'm going to close basically with a uh, video testimony from a gentleman named Israel Cohen, and I think it speaks to the power of this text. I mean, I heard about some of these... These guys, like John the Baptist, he's a Baptist. I found out later on he's Jewish. St. Paul, Jewish? Yeah, Jewish. St. Peter, how could anybody by the name of St. Peter be Jewish? Guess what? I found out they're all Jewish. Now, I grew up in Philadelphia in a Jewish neighborhood. On the other side of the street, that was mostly Gentiles. These poor Gentiles, they would worship a statue. Some of those people had statues in their lawns. At the age of eight years old, I joined the Cub Scouts, which is part of the Boy Scouts. They had a, they have, they still probably have this today, a magazine. It's called Boy's Life Magazine. And in that magazine, 
They had the instructions on how to build a uh, crystal radio. I was so excited. It was, it was like I was in heaven with this radio that worked. I would rush home from school and put on the earphones. And I was hearing these people talking about Jesus on the short wave. They were like, the same time I was preparing for my bar mitzvah, and my rabbi told me, never believe in Jesus and never read the New Testament. That's a Gentile book, and Jesus is for the Gentiles. I joined the Navy in 1960 and wound up in a, in a drill hall with 400 guys. Now, this is the first time in my life I was ever away from my mother and father. They taught me how to smoke a cigarette. Uh, you know, oh, I was coughing like crazy. They said, real sailors drink whiskey. And that was burning my throat. I did it because I wanted to be a real sailor. I wound up getting drunk every night. Wound up going out with, with women that I shouldn't be doing. Sometimes deep down inside of me, I was saying, man, this doesn't feel right. Something's wrong here. This doesn't seem right. You see, when you join the Navy, I don't know if they do this today anymore, but this was back in 1960. We were naked and had our hair shaved, and then we went through the line to get our uniforms and stuff. And at the end of the line, they said Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish. So they gave you a Bible. I had my Tanakh. I had my little, my Jewish scriptures. And I don't know what you do with the Bible. I thought, you know, it might be like a rabbit's foot, good luck charm, or maybe it'd be like my grandmother's chicken soup. Anytime I was sick, my grandmother said, have some matzo ball soup, have some chicken soup. It'll, I said, will it help? She said, it couldn't hide, you know? I said, well, I have a Bible. Will it help? Well, it couldn't hide, you know? Uh, one of the sailors uh, that I was with in the Navy said to me, you're Jewish, right? I said, yeah. Do you have a Bible? I said, sure, I have a Bible. They gave it to me when I joined the Navy. He said, let me see your Bible. And he turned in my Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. He said, here, read this. I read the whole chapter of Isaiah 53. I said, wait a minute. This sounds like those folks across the street. This sounds like the Gentiles. This sounds like what I was hearing on the short wave. They made a mistake. They gave me New Testament. And my rabbi told me, never read the New Testament. You better take this because this is for you. This is not my Bible. So no, no, look, Hebrew Publishing Company. <gasps> Hebrew Publishing Company. What's, this is crazy. What's Jesus doing in my Bible? He said, well, he's your Messiah. He's my Messiah. I, I, I was shocked. And he said, would you like to read about that in the New Testament? I said, uh, well, I can't read the New Testament because my rabbi told me never read uh, the New Testament. And he looked around over here. And he looked over here. And he says, I'll make a deal with you. If you don't tell your rabbi that you read the New Testament, I won't tell him either. I thought about that for a minute. Okay, but I was scared. I thought lightning was going to strike me. I actually thought I was going to be struck by lightning. I expected it to be a Gentile book. I expected it to take place in Rome with a bunch of popes talking about Catholic things and statues. What surprised me is how Jewish the New Testament really is. It's the most Jewish book I ever read. The more I, I, I read the scriptures, the more I, I was, was praying, I realized that inside I was not, not clean. Inside, I had all kinds of anger. I was getting drunk every night. I was going with the women. I was smoking three packs of unfiltered palm all the day, coughing like crazy. I was making pretend like I enjoyed it. I didn't want to make pretend anymore. I didn't want to live that way anymore. Now it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm in the barracks, big barracks. And I had a blanket all the way over, and, and the light was shining on the New Testament. And I, I prayed, you know, Baruch Atah, Lord, Jesus, I'm here. Uh, um, I want to believe in you. And I went to bed. 
May 16, 1961, came to faith in, in the Messiah. That's just so important in my life. It's, it's a, a, a moment that totally, completely changed the revolution of my life. Even if I was the very last person on earth, Jesus would still have died for me. And I am confident that when I die, I'll go to be with him. Anyone else want to adopt that guy to be your grandpa? <laughs> so cool. <laughs> the Ethiopian eunuch made this discovery. Israel Cohen made this discovery. Have you made this discovery? Have you put your faith in the suffering servant who becomes the victorious king? Has he healed your wounds? Ask him to come into your heart today. Today's the day. Accept the one true Messiah as Lord. The work's already been completed. It's a free gift. Like Isaiah being touched with the cold, Jesus has done the work. You can have that confidence. You can have that revolution in your life. You can stop pretending. You can come home after being exiled from God. What a great day to come back to God the way Jesus came back into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Today's the day.